Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the George Boo Show. I'm your host, George Boo, and together with us is Soham, our guest host. So, how are you, Soham? I'm doing good. How about you, George? And I think we also have our wonderful guest, Michael, here today. Yep. We're super excited to introduce Michael Meyer, who is the co-founder and CEO of Pillar Financial Technologies, to our audience. So, Michael, how are you doing today? I'm excellent, George. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you both, you and Soham. Thank you, Michael. And you know, of course, for every guest we invite, we always wanted to learn more about the backstories of why they became a founder in the first place and what prompted them to start their first startup, this startup. So, Michael, can you tell us more about your journey? What made you become an entrepreneur, and what made you start Pillar Financial? I've been a lifelong entrepreneur since I'm about seven or eight years old, and I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So. Growing up, there was really no question whatsoever of what I was going to do when I got older. I just think that when I was younger, there was no technical or professional term for it. In 2010, I co-founded a marketing tech company here and based in Montreal. And that was really my first introduction to venture-backed startups and the growth and roller coaster ride of building a company. So when we exited in 2017, again, there was no doubt in my mind that I would get back on this amazing roller coaster journey. After leaving that company, I really got involved in a couple of companies that were in the fintech space, payments, accounting technology. And I really saw the challenges that small businesses faced in today's day and age with the plethora of technology or, or fintech apps that are available. And that really resonated with me because as a lifelong entrepreneur, I too had many a great challenges, you know, dealing with my bank or getting financing and all the other fun stuff that comes with growing a business. And 2020, I was approached by a local venture builder here up in Montreal, and they proposed this idea of small, medium business neobank, checked a bunch of boxes. I did diligence, I checked more boxes. And, you know, pretty soon I would say, let's go, giddy up. And here we are two years later, and we've put one of the first SMB neobanks in market up in Canada. That's awesome. And I do want to ask, Michael, is like, when I always hear about neobanks, I always think those are actually such interesting ideas, right? It is like, why haven't they come sooner? Like, why haven't there been more neobanks available solving the pain points? For example, like banking fees are so expensive for individuals and businesses. Like right now, sending e-transfer using my bank account, it's like $2 each and there's so many other products that are just like horrible for the end consumers or for the end businesses. So why haven't anyone done a neobank, you know, before, for example, like now? That's a super loaded question, but I will try to unpack it the best I can. I think that if we go back 15 years, we see the unbundling of every industry to become more automated and more transformative leveraging technology, right? Where now every business is a technology business and every industry has Technology has innovated and helped businesses accelerate in terms of what they're able to do in terms of efficiency. And naturally, I think in finance, specifically in banking, it's heavily regulated. And those industries tend to lag, you know, by five, 10 plus years, all the other industries that were touched earlier on. And if we look today, you know, the industries that are most ripe for disruption still to today are still finance, healthcare education. And in my opinion, the one that needs the most disruption is government because bureaucracy is bad. And every one of those industries have a tremendous amount of bureaucracy. Now, kind of fast forwarding, you know, regulation is required, at least specifically here in Canada. 
Canadians move slower than Americans or Western Europeans, specifically in finance. And that's partially why we haven't seen the explosion of neobanking or fintech apps, specifically here in Canada. Blowing that up just a little bit, Canada is a little bit different than the American banking system, as well as the European one, where the heavy concentration of a handful of banks, specifically there's six major banks, right? And there's only 34 chartered banks in Canada. And with that, I mean, who would argue if we were one of those banks, we definitely wouldn't want to have innovation. You know, our interest would be to maintain the status quo. So I do think that that has something to do with it as well. But change is inevitable and change is here. Change is like knocking at the front door today. Michael, maybe if we could take one step back, do you kind of want to explain different between what like a neobank is versus what a traditional bank is? Like to someone that kind of wouldn't know what either of them really do. For sure. I think it's very important. So conceivably, they both give customers the same service. Mm-hmm. The main difference is, is that a traditional bank, or what we call it here in Canada, a charter bank, is effectively a bank that is licensed by the government. It's regulated by a government entity to be a deposit-taking institution, meaning that it can legally take deposits, keep that money on its balance sheet, lend it out, which what banks do. And that is all regulated by the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, or the acronym is OSFI, O-S-F-I. Mm-hmm. A neobank, think of it this way, is a digital sales arm or a digital sales channel for that bank. So the end service for the customer is we can take the deposits and deposits sit in an account, but they do not sit on the neobank's balance sheet. It sits with that deposit-taking regulated institution. But everything else is seamless and it works exactly the same way. Got it. That's amazing, Michael. And I think that actually answers like a lot of the consumers and businesses questions like, should I trust a neobank to hold my money? And do you find yourself, Michael, to be always be explaining that, okay, we, Pillow Financial does not hold your money on our balance sheet. It actually belongs to one of the banks that we partner with. Do you get asked that question a lot? And do you think trust is like a big factor in neobanks? I think trust is probably the preeminent factor. Let's be honest, especially with what's in the news these days. Mm-hmm. Nobody is just going to willy-nilly just deposit money into an account. And we actually see that with our customers' behavior where it's like dipping the toe in, they'll deposit a little bit of money, then they'll put the foot in, and then they'll actually start to use it on a more regular basis. Specifically to your question about do we have to explain that to customers? Believe it or not, we are regulated by law, and this is the same in the United States as well, to disclose the deposit-taking institution that provides us those services. So we have a little disclaimer at the bottom of our site that says funds are held at XYZ institution. And in terms of you know customer behavior, I would hope that everyone reads that and sees it. But I think, you know, especially post-COVID, customers are a lot more comfortable with, you know, not having a physical, tangible bank branch to walk in and to deposit their money to. But I just do want to point this out, especially with what we're seeing in the headlines, is always make sure that where you're depositing your money, if you're in Canada, that there is a name of an actual institution who is regulated by OSFI or OSFI before you deposit your funds. Michael, I guess like, yeah, with, you mentioned with these headlines that have come up with, I'm guessing you referring to SBF and everything that's happened there and things like that. How has that kind of affected you guys or has it? I don't think it has. I'm sure it affects people somewhere, you know, like there, there are people that probably just group 
oh, everything's on the internet. You know, it's like kind of, you know, if you're in tech, if you have one of those re older relatives that comes to you at like a party or a gathering and says, oh, you're in computers. Can you help me fix this? Right. Like we all get those, those, those types of encounters. What I think is really interesting, you know, so ham to your question and, and what's really important here is that it really brings to the front how much an institution needs to be trusted. And for all intents and purposes, you know, we operate in a regulated environment and kind of to the point I made a little bit earlier is buyer beware, right? Like make sure the people who you're dealing with are reputable. And I actually think it's beneficial for what we do specifically because the funds that are held at Pillar's underlying institution are secure. They're in a bank, right? They're regulated. And so the risk, I'm not going to say there's no risk, but the amount of risk there is extremely manageable. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I guess then for you, do you think that the Austria regulation that we have and everything in place, like, is it harder to be a bad actor in like this kind of regulatory environment versus like what's happened to some of the other jurisdictions? Or So I can't answer that because I don't have those insights. Yeah. Okay. But yes, if you're operating in a regulated environment, it's much easier to be found out if you're breaking the rules, if you're operating in an environment where there are no rules. Yeah. That makes sense. And Michael, I do want to ask more about Pillar itself, because I think it's helping Canadians, small and medium-sized businesses or enterprises to get alternative bank account to the traditional financial services banks, right? So I do want to ask the first question is like, why going for those small and medium-sized businesses? Because I do know there are some companies that are here a few years ago, they're going after consumers. And I'm pretty sure there is a problem for consumers. For businesses, what are the pain points that you're seeing business owners have from your observation and conversations with them? I would actually argue, George, that consumers are much better served in a traditional charter bank, brick and mortar paradigm than they are for small businesses. And the specific problem that small businesses face is that think about this as, you know, if we were the executives of a very large bank. The bank is much more focused on the retail, so the individual customers and the corporate clients. These are the people, you know, the Fortune 500, Fortune 5000 type customers. And orphan between these two divisions is small businesses. And because small businesses, you know, typically you have a personal account that you have at that bank as well as your business, and they're typically underserved. And so what we see, and specifically to Canada, is that the bank will take a retail or a corporate product right? That suite of products they have. And then they'll just, I call it copy and paste it and rebrand it and sell it to small businesses. And the problems that arise are not the ability to transfer money from point A to point B, that you send me money or I send you money. The money's still getting there, right? It's the workflow or the user experience that the small business needs to go through to actually enact that specific transaction or series of transactions. And the problem that Pillar is solving is to make those, we call them workflows, but those user experiences, super simple. And so what's typically happening is, and I'll just use my own experiences, is that I timed myself, uh, you know, to write a check. It takes three to five minutes to do it properly, right? I have very bad handwriting. So I, you know, maybe I'm a little extra diligent, diligent, which slows me down. And so that's cumbersome. You know, if you have to write a hundred checks a month, that's 500 minutes of time right? Hence why we have printed checks. But ultimately, all of these innovations are very incremental, right? It's just like, okay, instead of writing a check, I'm printing it now. If I want to send someone a check, I just pull up your contact information. And that has really been the innovation in finance and in financial apps. But what's really happening 
is that small businesses are still spending tons of time to manage the banking and financial administration. We actually did a survey and we found it's like 250 hours a year the average small business is spending to do this. And so what we want to do and what we're doing actively is to take second by second, minute by minute, condense the time that small businesses are using to be able to do these tasks so that they can go do more important things. Specifically, what we're doing is where we started is making it easier to get paid. I don't know if anybody would disagree with getting paid is probably the most important thing you can do in your business because without that, you don't have cash and cash is effectively the oxygen or lifeblood of, of every business. And so when we think about it, specifically for users or small businesses that invoice customers, I personally believe that if you're a merchant or online, whether it's e-commerce or selling software, it's pretty good experience you have to be able to check out. But if I invoice you, there is an entire process or a workflow rife with friction. And I'll give you the example here. I invoice you, now we have to negotiate. How are you gonna pay me, George? Okay, that's the first point of friction. Second is some people are forgetful or maybe not as um, not as on top of things as others. And so you may have to get reminded a couple of times to pay the bill. Then you have to receive the payment. Then go look through your bank statement. Is this amount, who's it from? And maybe you sent it to me from a different name than the name on my invoice. And then that all has to be reconciled. And so all of those little processes, they all add up in time. And so what we've been able to do is to simplify that down into a handful of processes. Our objective is really to make that, you know, equivalent to like the Amazon one-click checkout, which I don't know about you. I can never get it in one click. It always takes me to a confirmation page, but that's our vision to make that part of the business simple. And as you could imagine, as you go through all the different tasks in the finance suite, there's tons of stuff that could be whittled down to one or two clicks. And I think getting paid is such a big hassle for a lot of business owners, especially I think for the non-online businesses, like the brick and mortar stores, retailers who sometimes have to take checks. I think for most companies, businesses, depositing a check, is actually a super big pain point because I think if your customer's bank and your bank are two different banks, you actually have to wait on, I think, five or 10 business days before you can deposit that amount in your account, oh, Michael. So like, is that one of the pain points that you guys are also looking to solve? Yeah. So let's separate that specific problem into two parts. The first part we'll call the user experience and the second part we'll call the bank rails. And that's kind of how the money moves through the system. On the user experience, I mean, today it's pretty much you take a picture and it automatically appears in your account and you fill in some data on it. To be honest, for the size of the market that exists there, I don't think there's a need to improve that user experience all that much. There's no doubt in my mind, we don't have it yet in Pillar. There's no doubt in my mind that we can do that better than you know, the status quo of what currently exists. However, when we look at the data, and I'm just going off of memory here, so I, I hope I'm not too wrong, but it's a very, very small percentage of industries that have more than 10 or 15% of payments are actually done via check. And this data can be found from Payments Canada, specifically here in Canada. In the US, it may be different. So for example, maybe for your American listeners, cash is used on a much more wide scale in the United States than it is in Canada, where the majority of transactions today are digital. But on the second aspect, George, to your point, this may sound a bit like a rant, but yeah, it doesn't necessarily make sense that your check is being held for five to 10 days, right? And the reason why that, that happens is that in the background, these things are still being encoded and processed in a manual fashion. There are a handful of rules 
right, for the way the Bank of Canada sets this. So it goes something like this. The bank has until a certain time in the morning to batch and submit all their payments, all their checks. Those checks have until, I think it's 11 o'clock or noon to submit them and to correct any errors. And then what's happening in that delay time is the bank you deposited the money into is checking with the bank with the check is written on to make sure there's actual funds in the system. And in my opinion, this is not the problems that Pillar here today is solving. These are like really money movement problems, which again, moves at a snail's pace here in Canada. And these are all like, there's a system in Brazil called Pixie. There's another one in India. I forget the term, but these systems have real-time payments. And that's where we're all heading. And kind of back to our hint at blockchain or crypto in that, but this is possibly one area that a publicly available blockchain ledger can maybe help accelerate the speed of settling the money. However, the area that neobanks like Pillar can actually affect is how much we trust you as the customer to be able to make the sum of those funds accessible, right? And frankly, the way that customers are underwritten in terms of providing the amount of credit risk, I mean, it's very complex, right? You unfortunately have bad actors in every system, especially when there's something at value at stake, but there's better, more modern ways in which it can be done. And those are the variables in which, you know, the small business customers can actually benefit from. Very interesting. And I think like I was looking at over LinkedIn, it looks like it only started Pillar from less than two years ago. I think it was January 2021 where we started the business. Yeah. And now it looks like at least on the team side, the business has grown a lot. Tell us more about the early days and then fast forward to today, like what has changed the most? And then how you guys grow from, you know, maybe just you and your co-founders, for example, to now like 20 plus people on the team, I'm assuming. So we were very fortunate is that, you know, we had institutional investors from day one. So we knew that we had to grow the team. And we also knew that building a neobank is difficult, right? It, it's somewhat different than building traditional software where you can kind of, to use the quote, move fast and break things. You can't really do that with a neobank, right? Because there's tons of regulation that you need to adhere to. And you know, no one's giving you an open API to go into their payment system or a ledger. So we knew we needed to build the team. And I think that you alluded to the 11 people on the team. I think what's more important is the caliber of people on our team. That is extremely important. A lot of people, you know, they use cliches, oh, we only deal with A players. Frankly, you can't just have a team of A players. It's, you know, there's no team of just alphas that doesn't work, right? You need to have a team. A team is a team. So finding the right team balance is extremely important. And what was really important for us when building the team, it's about, we call it culture. I mean, it could be attitude. It could just be people's different view of the world. And one of the really important things for us in building the team is to have a representative group of people that see things from different perspectives. So what's really interesting is that of all of the people on the team, only three are natively born Canadians. Everyone else comes from somewhere else in the world. That is really important because when we start to look at the demographics for entrepreneurs, the vast majority of entrepreneurs, they're either first or second generation immigrants, but they're also from diverse cultural and ethnic backgrounds. You know, I'm Caucasian. So if I'm just using my perception or the, my view of the world, well, then I will be missing out the perception of my market because I do not necessarily see the world in the same way. But more specifically to building I think it's very important. Again, the number of people doesn't matter because there's very possible you have 10 people that are way more productive than a hundred person team. And it's building systems, processes, cultures, understanding how to communicate with each other. 
And so all of this fun stuff gets to be done, you know, in the early days when building is slow and you're just figuring stuff out. I call that moving slow to go fast, but it's a much harder when you're in, in the thick of it and there's stuff breaking and there's customers demanding stuff to build that culture. So for us, it was very important to do that from day one. You talk about that moving slow to build fast kind of like culture, right? Like, and you kind of alluded that a lot of it was through like that diverse team that you have. How have you built that culture? And what is that culture like right now? And what do you think is good for, let's say like a startup culture, maybe like a mid-sized culture? Like what are the main goals you have to keep that core culture that you kind of built already? Just as a preamble, we're a remote first company, right? Okay. So as a matter of fact, today, you know, one of my co-founders is based in Toronto. So Elena, and then my other co-founder, Vince, is based here in Montreal, but we live in very different parts of the city. And, you know, we only get together, you know, once every couple of weeks. So we're actually all together today. So the most important thing, in my opinion, for a remote first culture is you need to understand how to communicate, mm -hmm. right? And by understanding how to communicate and, you know, the nuances in communication, extremely important. And one way to solve for that specifically is using nomenclature, right? We call a particular feature. This is how it's called. Here's the description of it. Here is the definition. And this is what it means. So eliminating these potential for miscommunication around terms is extremely important. I think this, the, the other part of your question is, is like, how do you set it up? I think it's not easy, but it's all about repetition and communicate frequently and openly. As we transition back out of COVID, whatever state we're in today, whatever we're going to call it in a couple of years, one thing I noticed is that on a video conference, it's so easy for people to tune out yeah. and to just kind of get on with it. And I guess I'm super fortunate. You know, some of my success allows me to be on boards of directors and I see how other cultures and other organizations operate. And I will tell you that in every one of those instances, when it moved from person to video, the amount of interaction probably decreased by 70 to 80%. And then as we're moving back now from video to in-person, that communication is picking back up again. So that was a very long answer. So the short answer to that is don't give people free passes to just kind of sit there and be an observer, you know, force them to interact. Otherwise, nobody's going to get to know each other. And then the last part of that is try to have a regular cadence of in-person meetings. So if you can afford once a year, then keep it at once a year, but be extremely extremely thorough strict with keeping that cadence alive kind of hit it on that part like i think one of the biggest challenges i've seen is like yeah for me like i work from remote as well most of the time you don't really have that culture built in for like the company overall when you're in this remote besides just like the whole meeting in person once you have like i'm not sure if that would be enough like is there anything else that you've seen that's helped your team specifically to get like one clear vision for pillar between everyone this may not sound exciting, but it's the repetition and constant communication. It's not easy, right? Like, so yeah. we could be aligned today, but in a day or two, as you know, life gets in the way, that alignment start to get the diffusion around that. So it's really, 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 really important that you start to realign and try to bring that close together every time. And so as you get the divergence in wherever you're heading, hopefully everyone's always heading in the same general direction. You do what you need to do to get the convergence. And so for me, convergence is, you know, with my team having regular one-on-ones, having regular daily stand-ups. I think that's super important. Trying to have as many regular strategy sessions so that you can continue to converge around the strategy. 
whatever format you use, we happen to use OKR setting and that works really, really well for us. And so it's just repetitive. I think the worst thing, so I'm, to your point is that if you're leaving people alone on an island, they're going to feel that loneliness and, and things will not work. It's very hard to stay aligned when, if you're not communicating. So short answer is just regular communication, over communicate. Yeah. Has there been anything you've done to kind of make sure there's no like formal channel for communication? I know like before like COVID, like you kind of just like walked up to everybody and just said, hey, now there's like a little bit more of like, oh, hey, do you have time for a meeting? Or do you guys have like a more of a open door kind of concept? I think that in a remote first culture or organization, I, so, so first I would say this is that I think people, because of the remote first or they're not in person, the default is say nothing and just, you know, let me go on with my day in many organizations. So if you have just a very passive open door policy, you're going to have very few people taking advantage of that. Yeah. So I, I think the way to short circuit it is, is to effectively force people to communicate, right? It's just so easy for us to say, okay, I have nothing to say, see you later, you know, and, and go on about my day. And so forcing those interactions. So, you know, manager to employee one-on-ones, team one-on-ones, 360 reviews. Like I said, strategy sessions, daily stand-ups are super helpful, right? Because we use the format, you know, what did you do yesterday? What are you doing today? And what are the blockers that you have? And I find that those are effective, but that doesn't mean we can't, you know, we're not trying to get better every day. Yeah. I do want to ask a follow-up question, Michael, as your personal experience. So like you said, you have, you know, a few startups in the past, some has been acquired, but you decided to start this uh, roller coaster journeys again. So some mixed reactions, I think, from my um, recent interactions. There are some founders I've been talking to just say, okay, this year is too tough. 2022 is too tough. And I definitely don't want to be a founder again. Whereas you see also the, for example, the co-founder of, of Instacart, who just recently left the company before it became public. And now he's starting something in the healthcare sector. So just like a question is like, okay, like, for example, like the founder of Instacart and you have already been, you know, established success in your arenas, right? Like, for example, getting acquired by another company. What prompted you? What kept you going to start another company in which I would say probably not very long period of gap times, right? So, for example, we got acquired and in a year or two, you start another company. So what prompted you to start Pillar after a successful exit? Well, first, I want to thank you for putting me in the same category as the uh, former uh, the founder of Instacart. So I think that, and using him as an example, because I just read a story, his cadence is way quicker than mine. So I exited my previous company in 2018. I joined a company called Invoice Sherpa. That's this payments and accounting tech company. I spent roughly two years there. To be very upfront, I needed a break. I didn't even know I was burnt out until way after the fact, you know, running my previous company. And I just needed the downtime. But I think entrepreneurs have a specific mindset or a specific, it's almost a sickness, I would say. Um, I can't stand still. Like if I see an opportunity, my brain just works overtime. You know, I remember, and just to kind of paint it for the audience, I remember in university, I would throw parties. I was a party promoter. You know, that was my entrepreneurial venture. Then I would go to concerts with my friends. And instead of like enjoying the show, I would just observe what the crowd was doing, what was making the crowd, you know, excited and happy, and then try to understand all of the logistics, how this whole thing got set up. And unfortunately for my family, that's how I'm programmed because they're the ones that, that have to deal with me on a regular basis. So for me, when I left my, my previous startup, it wasn't so much about, am I going to do something again? It was more a matter of time of when. And I think the most important thing that every entrepreneur just needs to 
understand it's all about timing you know probably one of the best lessons i learned early on as an entrepreneur is that there's never going to be a shortage of opportunities or ideas to come your way it's when and what you choose to invest your time on and as i get older and the finite aspect of time becomes you know more and more relevant and a lot more tangible you start to appreciate and respect that a lot more you know every day i could be doing 10 other things why am i choosing this one thing to focus on today and then pillar was an amazing opportunity it's something that i'm personally super passionate about i love entrepreneurship and so hopefully this is a way in which we can help entrepreneurs be way more successful and i can look back and our team can look back and say hey part of what we did helped to contribute to that that's amazing oh my god and i know that pillar is still a fairly young company so can you share us with us like what is your vision for pillar in the next couple of years i'm guessing your ambition is to make it be beyond more than just a neobank um, but please share with us your vision for the company i think one of the things that grounded me and what makes me extremely excited about neobanking or just helping entrepreneurs is that if you go to a local you know little league game or any community event again this is my entrepreneurial mind look at the advertisements those advertisements even if it's a big chain chances are that's a local business person behind there so in canada it's all about tim hortons i think almost every tim hortons is owned by an independent franchisee and so at the root it's community right we need to support our communities we need to be able to keep our communities successful moving forward and hopefully most of the benefits derived from local businesses or businesses because everyone's international today are reinvested locally and so to me that is like the root of why i do this in terms of you know our mission and what our ambitions are it's no less than being the first choice financial partner for small businesses that's amazing so hum any final questions for michael before we are running out of time I just want to say behind you that poster the uh open 24 hours hard work pays off so yeah. take no days off. I really like that motto. I'm guessing that's something that one of the pillars <laughs> So thank you for that. These are prints. They're all derivatives of like the Monopoly board. Yeah, I think that I don't know if I agree with the open 24 hours, but I do definitely agree that hard work pays off, right? And when I started my last company, you know, hustle culture was the thing. And I think hustle culture is important and I think that paradigms swing from side to side we are moving back to a more hustle culture in today's climate but I would say to people listening hustle culture should not be subscribed to at large without understanding what your personal limits are and what you need to actually operate you know I remember when early in my career it was I thought it was about the amount of hours I clocked you know well no it's about the value you drive also you can't be at the top of your game if you're working 24 hours however to your comment so ham i could also take that same message and say hey we need to be there and provide value for our customers 24 hours a day yeah. it just doesn't need to be the same person in that particular time frame no i think those are really wise words there's definitely that burnout if you just work too much and if you're just working for the sake of working not really for that end goal like a more big picture you're just going to yeah burn yourself out and not really be able to be as productive. I think those are really wise words. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. Thank you. I, no, I wanted to just add one thing back to your questions about building a remote team. I think that that's also super important. 
to not impose that on your team because it's super easy when you're working from home in your pajamas to work 18, 20 hours a day being in the same particular seat. So encouraging your team to get out and do stuff. I mean, if there are people locally, create local events and reasons to get together. So I mentioned that the team as a whole gets together once a quarter, but we try to have at least a monthly gathering. In mm-hmm. I mean, most of the people are based here in Montreal. So we try to have a local gathering roughly about once a month. Some months we're better at it and other months we're not. But I think that that's going back to your statement. I think that's also super important. Yeah, definitely. So thank you so much, Michael, for giving us like a tour of your like methodology of how you run a startup, how you manage a remote team. And honestly, really, really excited for bringing like new banks here in Canada. I know this must be super hard to do it. From talking to people in the fintech industry, especially in Canada, I understand how difficult it is to launch a fintech new bank, especially facing businesses. So a lot of respect for you getting that done. And thank you so much for joining the show today. I hope we can see you here again soon, Michael. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, it was great to meet you and look forward to uh, listening to the pod. Awesome. Just before we go, Michael, how can people find out about you and Pillar Financial? So I'm not here to plug me. So gopillar.ca. If you're a Canadian business, go there, sign up. It takes about five minutes or less. You get an account and you're up and running. Thank you so much, Michael. And thank you so much for talking Thank you. more about Pillar. Talk soon. Take care.